Welcome to another episode of The Archipreneur Now. I am your host, Heath Armstrong, and this is episode 37. I am so, so, so pumped up to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. George Seke, from Hungary to New York City, all the way down here to where I reside in Lexington, Kentucky. He is the art head at the University of Kentucky, and everybody needs to put emphasis on exactly what he does when he teaches. He is unbelievable. Not only that, he is an artist, he is an author, and he has revolutionized how we should teach students how to create and how to move forward with life using these creations. You do not want to miss this episode. For all the show notes, artsynow.com forward slash 37, and here we go. Come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Come on, come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Here we go now. Who wants to get funky? Who wants to get a little creative out there? Which one of you want to get a little bit artsy now? Well then get on with your bad self. He's all about the props. He's all about the visuals. And he lives to bring excitement to the classroom. As creative as creative can be, he's an art professor at the University of Kentucky in the area ahead, currently changing lives one smile and one child at a time. A skittamarinkity dinkity dink, a skittamarinkity doo. Dr. George Seke, you are the entrepreneur now. What is going on? It sounds like this is your life. <laughs> oh, that was a great introduction. <laughs> Thank you. It's a lot of fun. It gets the, the juices flowing. You know, the energy gets up a little bit. Yes. The, the uh, last uh, uh, gig I had was with the uh, Secretary of Education in Ohio at the Ohio Art Museum. And he had a very formal introduction. And then I came on with... Um, <clears throat> Three different size um, Barbie and inflatable um, microphones, <laughs> <laughs> and I was checking for the sound. <laughs> he was absolutely appalled. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me that one of them was one of those giant blow-up ones that's like three feet long. That's that's what I had in hand. <laughs> so we're on the same page then. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Seike, he's a painter, he's yeah. an artist and a teacher, the art professor at the University of Kentucky, distinguished fellow and former vice president of the National Art and Education Association, really constantly pioneering creative principles and methodologies into the field of art teaching. You've authored over 10 books, uh, over 112, 12, over 100 magazine and journal articles, probably more uh, than that now. Uh, yes. You've been a keynote speaker all over the country, winner of several awards, uh, creator of the very respected Adopt a School program, which is kind of the first field-based art education program in America. Uh, so, I mean, going back to when you were a kid, did you know that when you were a child, you wanted to be involved in all this creativity and all this art when you grew up? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I went to school in Budapest, Hungary, and uh, in the first grade, uh, we had to stand in front of the auditorium, and we had several art tests. The first was a singing exam, and in front of the auditorium, we had to sing the Hungarian national anthem, very difficult song. And as I started, I saw my classmates damning their ears, and I knew my singing career was over. And next, we went to the art test in a classroom where they handed out um, graph paper, put out an apple, and we had to execute this apple correctly. And while I was working, Professor Manfreda was walking around with a big stick hitting our hands if we missed a line. And I failed that test, <laughs> which meant in, in um, Hungary that you, the rest of your art career was over. There was no more art for um, the elementary or, or uh, subsequent grades. So I had an early end to my art career. <laughs> so so you're, you went home that day and your hands hurt a little bit. My hands hurt uh, a little bit, and my pride and my um, my uh, feeling towards art. <laughs> uh, it was not until um, the Hungarian Revolution when we uh, arrived in Vienna, and my mother worked in a um, home for uh, children who uh, were separated from their parents uh, during the exodus at the border, and uh, we had a wonderful um, artist who was working with these orphans. And apparently he was very strict and I was the only one who dared to uh, be in his classroom. But it was wonderful. We had a wonderful time together. And um, he found out he was very interested in my art, which is the first art teacher who was interested in my art, not just in conveying information about art. And I uh, was very interested that I was also a Pez collector, and he collected Pez. <laughs> and I remember my first project being repairing the head of one of my Pez containers with a um, clay sculpture of Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very helpful and very interested. And he was um, he saw art way beyond uh, just a classroom and established this incredible relationship that we had, which is really the essence of all teaching, not just art teaching. Yeah. So he, he was really interested in your art and you've kind of taken that principle from a young age and turned it into where you are today. Can you tell us about your background coming from, you know, Hungary to Vienna to the United States and how you got started as a creator here and, and kind of what major benchmarks have led you to where you are today? Uh, it was a long journey from uh, Vienna to uh, uh, the classrooms of, of classrooms of, of um, Bedford Stuyvesant in, in New York City, where we landed. Um, but I had a wonderful art teacher whose name was Mr. Williams, and of course I didn't speak English, and he allowed me to stay in the classroom instead of uh, going out to the regular classes. He allowed me to stay in his classroom and have a corner studio full time. 
And he used to bring in his old tablecloths to paint on, his, his old x-rays. Uh, he brought in uh, his own oil paint sets. And he had great faith in my um, ability to come up with things to paint and draw and gave me the time in a school setting, gave me this time to, uh, to uh, be the artist, the resident artist, which gave me an incredible confidence. And uh, Mr. Williams uh, changed my life completely, encouraged me to go on to the High School of Music and Art, the famous first magnet school in the country. Uh, my classmates were Peter, Paul, and Mary, as, as a matter of fact. Really? Yes. That's that's super interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it it was great. I, I, high school of music and art. Uh, I really um, felt I became an artist. We had um, it was a very unusual magnet school because we were really close friends with dancers and musicians, and we had wonderful collaborations across the arts. And went to many concerts and and really lived the life of an artist. So I stayed in Greenwich Village. I went to uh, Cooper Union and um, NYU Pratt Institute after that. Stayed in the village. And the early years in the village were very exciting in the um, early 60s. Uh, It was a very unusual place. And uh, I remember wandering into... um, um, during a lunchtime walk into this strange um, food store. <laughs> and I thought I was going to be purchasing lunch. But um, actually, uh, walking through the store, everything was made of plaster, the hamburgers, the um, ice cream, um, everything was um, painted and wonderful plaster constructions, but it looked like an old um, uh, store, a food store. And it was uh, Clay's Oldenburg's uh, store. It was his first artwork and his first store in the village. And I was one of his food shoppers. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a, a fascinating place. And um, uh, the old Chelsea Hotel, which is uh, famous for many artists who live there. Uh, I was fortunate enough at that time to uh, to see an artist studio and then to be invited to the Chelsea to see their uh, how they work. So it wasn't just a school experience. The village was my entire experience. And um, when I got to Columbia, um, my professor and I, um, together with uh, four other graduate students, took over an old sewing factory in Soho. Soho at that time was mainly factories and one or two galleries. Uh, O.K. Harris was there and um, another uh, smaller gallery. And we decided to uh, convert the building into the first co-op in the United States. And uh, it ran for about 15 years and we all had major shows. Every year I had to paint for a major show. And um, we lived through the change of Soho, how it became a great art center. And then, of course, right now, uh, it became too expensive, and it, it's it's really more of a uh, clothing, furniture, design center. So you kind of pioneered some of that then. Yes. We, it, was, it was really a wonderful time, and uh, the professor uh, was very supportive. He said, you have to be out there. 
go home and paint. <laughs> and, and we worked uh, during the night, during the late afternoons, and uh, turned this three-story um, building, commercial building, into a wonderful gallery. It's called the West Broadway Gallery, right next to Nancy Hoffman and across the street from O.K. Harris. So every show was major because I'm going to be a star because we had all these um, um, names in the um, in the art field coming to look at our work. It was very exciting, and we had a chance to be uh, reviewed in Art News and uh, Art in America, and uh, it, it was an exciting start. Unfortunately, it uh, put an end to it early during the Lindsay administration in New York when New York City went bankrupt. And I was uh, uh, teaching at the City University of New York and our department was closed. Music, dance, theater, art was closed. And that's when my career in Soho and of course this gallery that we spent so much time investing our energy and, and uh, time in, in running the gallery and in, in exhibiting in the gallery, uh, doing every phase of the work. Um, I had to leave New York. And uh, the only job in the United States at that time in my field was in the state of Kentucky. So I rushed to look at the map to see <laughs> where Kentucky was. That's how we ended up here. So that, that had to have been unbelievably hard to, to have that program get swept out from underneath your feet after spending so much time and energy building it up, you know, how, after you made the move to Kentucky, how did you, how did you uh, kind of put some habits and methods and practices back in place to get back on your feet and find all that value and meaning back in your life again? Well, the, the quiet and the um, lack of distractions in Kentucky, also the, uh, the space that I was able to afford in Kentucky, I worked in uh, grocery stores and in, in old abandoned buildings. And uh, I never had really a, a first rate studio. I could never afford it in New York. But in Kentucky, right away, I had a fabulous studio. And so that helped. Uh, very few distractions. The art scene at that time was very small. And um, so I could concentrate on my work. I was very productive. Um, however, um, my colleagues warned me that it would be very difficult to keep the connections with New York living so far away. Um, most of my colleagues at the University of Kentucky were either from California or also exhibited in New York. And um, so that, that was a problem in keeping my contacts um, in New York. Um, but otherwise, I was very productive, and I continued uh, painting and writing uh, my regular schedule. I work early in the morning. I start at 5 writing, and then uh, I spend, <clears throat> before my teaching, I spend most of my day uh, painting. So, so I continue to work. So you start at 5 o'clock in the morning writing? I find that for writing, I need that quiet and concentration of the early morning. And uh, most of my life, I've started early in the morning with the writing and, um, and then painting. And of course, I teach twice a week. Absolutely. I, I, I'm in 100% agreement with you. I've, I wasn't always like this, but a couple months ago, I started 
decide that instead of waking up at seven o'clock a.m., I'm going to start getting up at four o'clock a.m. And I yes. got so much done in that peace and quiet from four to seven a.m. All the things that I would have been trying to cram in from like five p.m. to eight o'clock p.m. at night, I get all of it done before eight o'clock a.m. even hits, and the rest yes. of the day just takes root. I mean, it's amazing the difference it can make. Absolutely, especially if I'm on a bo- working on a book, I work up. I wake up as early as possible, and and um, uh, it's also wonderful for my students because <clears throat> I have uh, made art, I've painted. I don't come in as a frustrated artist, <laughs> and I enjoy seeing their work as colleagues. Um, so I, I feel that um, I satisfied uh, this crazy need of an artist to make work, to keep working, and I can I can be in a class and, and uh, not be in a sense jealous. And I think many art teachers are jealous, you know, that they cannot work and spend the whole day actually and the whole lifetime of an art teacher is watching others work. Well, th- this is something that you've absolutely created for yourself. And I know you've got this Adopt a School project. C- could you tell us a little bit about how you started that and how the transforming the preparation of, of future art teachers with this program? And what, what do you think some of the main problems are in the art classroom today? And how are you using this Adopt-A-School program to address them? I started teaching. <clears throat> I, I wanted to become a painter. And I had no uh, intention uh, to become an art teacher. Uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, just coming from Hungary recently, uh, going through the revolution, World War II, uh, uh, concentration camps, and so on. I was the, left as the only child in the family, and I did not want to partake in the Vietnam War. The only way to um, not participate at that time was to teach in one of the five designated schools in New York that could not keep teachers. So I applied for one of the jobs and went into the classroom uh, with the principal. And I was amazed that the classroom was actually black and charred and smelled. And it was burned down just a week before by the students. Oh, wow. The principal told me that if I can keep this job for three months, if I would stay with him for three months, I would have the job. So I took the job, and uh, I found it to be one of the most exciting periods in my life. Um, it, the students came to art and skipped all their other classes. They sneaked into the art class and then left after art. Uh, they loved the art. They, they um, uh, certainly um, we had an incredible relationship with with each student and. Um, it, it, it was like Picasso discovering African art for the first time. Because in art school, it was a matter of how do you get into the galleries? You know, how do you become famous? How do you sell your work? Um, and it was the time of abstract expressionism, which means <clears throat> how do you make abstract expressionist art? And, and our teachers were the stars of that period. And that's all that existed. But when I saw children's art, they made art for the 
most lovely reasons. <laughs> they wanted to make a, a blanket for their sister or a present for their mom. And uh, they were not familiar with uh, the history of art. So their art was as free and innovative as I have ever seen, um, which really inspired my work. And since most of my kids could not speak English, and I was very familiar with that. I didn't speak English in Vienna. I didn't speak German in Vienna. I didn't speak English when I came here. So we decided to make art together. And we made art together, but not to uh, interrupt their work. We made it in different ways, in, in light, in layers of plastic. Um, and we actually talked to each other through the artwork, even though we couldn't speak to each other through words. And um, it, it was a very interesting period. I still have some of my own work from that period where we worked with the children. Some layers are theirs, some layers are mine. We had a wonderful show at the Brooklyn Museum of this work. And um, I began to like teaching. I, I enjoy teaching, but at that time, <clears throat> there were um, a shortage of um, uh, students, and actually a shortage in New York. In other words, there were lots of empty classrooms. So when I began to teach in college, the principals were very happy to uh, have an extra room for me. And uh, since in my teaching, I always noticed when <clears throat> college people came in to talk to us how they had no clue actually what we were doing. Most of them never taught in their life, but they became uh, art education teachers and their advice was completely off. So I decided when I start teaching in college that my classes will not be held at the university. They will be held in the public schools and they will be held in the hallways, in the gym, in the lunchroom so other people can see it in public. And uh, this started in um, New York. And when I came here <clears throat> in uh, 1970, let's see, 1977, I came here. I continued it in Fayette County and we went out to Woodford and the surrounding areas. And um, <clears throat> we worked um, in the school. And then after preparing our teaching, then we went into the classroom but we never met at the university. At that time, there was no student teaching. There was no <clears throat> fieldwork hours. Now students are required to take 250 fieldwork hours. Uh, fieldwork was unheard of. Um, and I was very welcome in the schools. I was the only one there. Um, and I went with the students. I, I played and uh, performed and uh, demonstrated and supported and cheered my students. And they had a chance to see if teaching is for, art teaching <clears throat> is for them. Um, you know, this idea of student teaching and spending a lot of time, effort, and money, and then finding that I really don't want to teach after four years, that's an impossible situation. So we started right from the beginning in the schools and stayed in the schools for their full term. And of course, now at a common occurrence, you know, there is student teaching, there is field observation, 
Uh, now it's called the clinical model that they use uh, after the uh, medical programs uh, that things are things take place. The education takes place in the schools. But at that time, it was novel. And it was great. I went from state to state in trying to develop these programs in different places. Um, in fact, last year, I went to Finland. I went to Rome this year. <laughs> in Europe, they're very interested as well, because in Europe, they don't have this field-based model of, of education, of art education. Hey guys, this is Heath, and I just wanted to take a break here for a minute to ask your favor on something. Uh, I do The Entrepreneur now because I love doing it, and I love meeting all these creative people, and I think that it really does have an impact on the world, and I wanted to say thank you to all the listeners out there because you are amazing and you are driving this force. Uh, I am in no way ever trying to make money off The Entrepreneur Now, but I wanted to know if you all would do me a favor and go to artsynow.com forward slash iTunes or go into your iTunes app and just leave me a review or a five-star rating on this show because that really helps carry the show to larger audiences and it helps more than you can imagine. And also shoot me an email at create at artsynow.com. I would love to hear from who you are, where you're from, and how you heard about the show. And now back to the show. You know, you're, you're obviously leading a life that is much larger than just receiving a paycheck or making good, a good living. You know, I can feel the energy in you. I can feel the passion. You're truly changing the world and influencing so many lives through sharing your passions and your creative ideas and pinpointing these different ideas. I mean, it, you wrote a book on From Play to Art. That was the title. And you discuss how playing yeah. is really a direct source and an outlet for a child's creativity. And yes. it sort of shows teachers how to initiate play that will inspire fresh and imaginative art through development. You're really an advocate of celebrating the artist in every single child. And you believe that as adults, you know, we can all learn a lot from these cre this creative gene in these children. So how, when, when you get art students in and you're teaching them how to teach children and you're, you're taking them into the classrooms, you know, what are some of the, the main points that you try to make to them? Just an introduction to that, I spent <clears throat> my preparation for teaching is, for example, I <clears throat> spent this summer uh, crawling after my two-year-old granddaughter in, in Woodstock and seeing the world through her eyes of play and discovery. And uh, so I, I play with children, my grandchildren, all summer, and I <clears throat> take notes and souvenirs which end up in my classroom. Um, the, uh, my class, <laughs> you can bring toys to, they will not be confiscated. <laughs> my class, you can bring your ideas to, you can bring your silly ideas to, you can, um, come with, um, your fast food figures, um, um, uh, your uh, clay birthday cakes and all kinds of uh, pool toys or whatever uh, you happen to be uh, playing with. And we continue playing in the art class. I play with adults. My art classes always start and really take place on the floor. We don't use the desks unless we go under the desks and we use it as a mall or a shopping center or a tunnel or um, 
an artist studio or a playhouse. But otherwise, we move furniture out as much as possible out of the way. And just like children, we play on the floor. And uh, the <clears throat> students, are, the adult students, are very surprised that I invite them into my office, I say, and uh, my office is I sit on the floor, come to my office. This is my, and, um, and we start playing. And um, I share many of the things that children make at home. I don't uh, dwell on adult art. Um, um, uh, my Examples are really works that children have done at home. Uh, I go through, for example, in my first few classes, all the art that my three grandchildren have made during the summer. So I celebrate children's art with them. And <clears throat> we, um, we play all kinds of, of games. We uh, uh, ride a stick horse, we, we pretend. Uh, we take objects and transform them into um, other things. Uh, reminds me in a sense of Robin Williams of what he could do with a single scarf. And so I may pass an umbrella around. I may, I may pass uh, a funnel uh, around the room and we play with it and we see what we can do with it. Uh, we dress up in things. Um, uh, we shop, we do a great deal of shopping. The, my art class is a shopping site where I have suitcases, where I have uh, uh, trunks, uh, steamer trunks. I have all kinds of containers that the kids can look through, including my own pocket. <laughs> they love to look through the teacher's pocket. And uh, they find the things that they're interested in, which gives them a wonderful clue as to what they want to do. Uh, the kids are the star of the class instead of the teacher starting the class. So the kids uh, present their ideas and they love to perform their ideas and possibilities. And then it's merely encouraging each one to go into their own direction. And uh, believe me, they find the most fascinating direction that no lesson plan of, of the art teacher, no single lesson plan of an art teacher can predict. And that's the fun of art teaching. That's what kept me in the profession for all these years, that I like to be surprised. I like to learn from the kids, um, not just make an art lesson of something I like and then teach it to everyone. This is how you do it. Oh, this is amazing. You're, you're taking them back to the roots and, and just kind of opening up that threshold of creativity and it's leading them down the path of what they really are interested in, what they really want to do, uh, which is so amazing. And I think I might have to come re-enroll myself back in college at Kentucky just so I can be a part of your class and dress up like a Batman or something when I come. Yeah, absolutely. You're very <laughs> welcome. We, we have, um, I'm constantly at Goodwill collecting old clothes, old belts, um, uh, suspenders, all kinds of things that the kids can use in their playing. And I wish there needs to be more like you, Dr. Seike. There really does. I, I went to class one time and I was just in these little shorts and a basketball uniform holding the basketball. And I'm pretty sure the teacher gave me a B just because of that. And it was probably one of the easiest classes I ever took. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we use lots of balls, uh, including basketballs, golf balls. We uh, um, 
We do all kinds of uh, plays. We're playing ball in the classroom. Uh, can you imagine playing ball in an art room? <laughs> kind of a nightmare to, to, to some principals. But some wonderful, I mean, you're talking about pattern and texture and uh, the transformation of the ball. Um, my uh, granddaughter took this uh, beach ball I bought her this summer and playfully punctured <laughs> the beach ball and decided to make this into a wonderful hat. And then she made this ball from it uh, for her cat. <laughs> so, I mean, this, this is just, you know, balls are, are just uh, incredible. To, I always have a whole variety of balls to play with. But the uh, you don't see me, but I'm wearing my CCA T-shirt, which is the Center for Creative Art Teaching, which is really my latest project. Um, where I'm trying to spread this idea to different uh, state conventions to uh, speak at um, wherever I can. I, art museums have evenings for educators that I like to be invited to. We worked at LACMA and the Art Institute. And uh, so we like to speak to teachers. And um, uh, right now I'm working for the Sam Francis Foundation in Pasadena. I'll be going out there next week. And we're trying to set up a model school. So, yes, I'm, I'm trying to um, uh, expand it to different parts of the country and have model programs. We're trying to collect some money for the University of Kentucky Art Museum to have a George Sakelly Center for uh, creative art teaching. This is amazing because, you know, this is these kids will remember that for the rest of their lives. They will never forget this and they'll pass it on and. And it's truly a remarkable thing that you've got going on here. And I wish you all the luck in doing that. Thank you so much. And there's a video of you floating around on YouTube where you're actually giving us a, a really, really good speech. I watched the whole thing last night and I'll post it in the show notes. Uh, but you've got a whole a whole stage full of props, man. There's, there's got to be 50 props up there on the stage. I travel light, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, how, how do you get all, you get taken a school bus to get all that stuff up there? Well, uh, in the early days, it was not a problem of extra luggage weight and paying for extra luggage. So <laughs> uh, right now I, I do have a van and I do a lot of driving. I also have an ice cream truck <laughs> <laughs> that I put some of my props in and the children love seeing the ice cream truck with all the uh, props in it. Um, <laughs> I would have never guessed. <laughs> yes. So but, who, from a, from a personal standpoint, who, who are some of your favorite uh, creative artists? Do you have any favorite painters or authors? My, my great thrill, now this you will probably laugh at, but uh, um, <clears throat> after my Rome lecture, I headed to southern France, to Nice, uh, this summer. And there is a uh, little known museum where uh, Matisse kept his um, uh, a good part of his private collection. Uh, we walk into the museum. There's no charge for entrance, <laughs> and we were the only. My my uh, daughter and I, who was teaching art education at EKU, my daughter and I uh, were the only people. Of course, the guards, and I had a chance to sit in Matisse's chair, which is pictured in many of his famous paintings. Right. And uh, he allowed me to try on his robe, this oriental robe that 
So it was it was one of the most memorable occasions of a favorite artist actually sitting in their chair and wearing one of their favorite props. Um, That's amazing. And it's free admission, yes. huh? Free admission. And you know what else is interesting? It is in a park dedicated to American jazz. So <laughs> you enter the park with statues of, of Lionel Hampton, all the great uh, jazz musicians, American jazz musicians, and then the Matisse Museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nice was great. Yeah, that, that's that's crazy. It yeah, sounds it, like an adventure, though. You went there with your daughter, so she teaches art at EKU also? She has. We are competitors, and I'm so proud that uh, 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 she's an incredible art teacher, a very innovative art teacher, at um, doing the same work I do at UK, and she's at Eastern Kentucky University. Well, she obviously had an amazing teacher, so. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, if she, if she would have gone up, gone up through school with one of those, you know, stone cold, hardcore, you can't do this, you can't do that, art teachers like most of us had, she might not wanted to have any interest in art, you know? She grew up in my studio, my granddaughters, um, all my children grew up in my studio. My son is a um, jazz um, cello player and has the only jazz cello school and teaches the only jazz and, and rock and roll cello in the United States. And his school is in Los Angeles and he's um, been doing uh, incredible work. This. It, the uh, L.A. Times named his school the number two reason after the um, Phil- Los Angeles Philharmonic to study music in Los Angeles. And he works with kids on the cello to play the music they love. Uh, in fact, two of his students just two weeks ago won a fiddle playing contest on the cello. <laughs> <laughs> and- wow. So uh, if, if you're interested in, in an interview of an incredible school and in a, a new method completely um, that will really keep the interest of students um, who are by and large not interested in classical music but love the instrument. Absolutely. Uh, you, should, you should definitely give me an introduction to him or, or give me his email and I'll get in touch with him. I'd love to get him on the show. My girlfriend actually plays the cello. Oh, wonderful. Well, she'd love that. Look up String Project LA. Okay. And they have a wonderful website, and uh, it's a very exciting place to be. Yeah, it's an amazing instrument, too. And I love jazz, so can't beat that. Well, he's adjusted. You know, when he was a little boy, he uh, started building. Um, there, there were no uh, electric cellos at that time. So he started modifying his school cello you know, to, <laughs> uh, to this. But um, um, now he's also consulting with Yamaha to create some really new and interesting cellos, electric cellos. Woohoo. I'll have to get a hold of those and have a little party and do a little boogie dance or something. Okay. I'm getting, I'm getting a little excited over here. <laughs> Good. Well, we're getting close to the time here, Doctor, and I'm going to get into some of these closing questions for you real yes. quick. Uh, do, if you could spend a little bit of time with anybody from the past or present creating something, who who do you think it would be and what would you create? I, 
I have always had a fascination with um, uh, creating uh, works that would um, uh, cover large pieces of land. Um, so I would uh, work with, uh, certainly with artists, uh, environmental artists. Um, the new series I spoke to you about this summer, um, actually they're, they're rolls of fabric, they're, they're sheet fabric, and I just rolled them out in the forest into these large paths through the forest and used the grasses and, and fauna and uh, rocks and available materials to do the painting. So I, I would love to do a, a mountain-sized painting, actually, uh, a, a, perhaps a, a path, a track through a mountain um, of, of these, these large uh, white paths with my paintings on it. So I would select uh, some environmental artists to work with me. And uh, occasionally, Lona, my daughter, is, is also assisting me with a large project. But that's what I started this summer. Wow. That sounds unbelievable. So you're taking this and, and going across the landscape and then using the natural materials to do the paintings. Exactly. So we go over rocks, we go over grasses, we go over... Uh, plants and and um, different um, uh, regions of soil, and it's, it changes the painting completely. Especially when you use instruments that will allow you to do that. I remember when I graduated art school, we had an unusual party. It was my brush burning party. I got all my brushes from art school, and we had a little bonfire in the backyard. And I stopped using brushes since then. So I, um, as in this project, I use what is available to do my painting. Wow, that's amazing. So on your when you're doing your regular paintings, yes, uh, not the huge, large scale ones, obviously. What what are some yes. of your techniques, or what kind of tools do you use? Well, I use whatever is around. Um, uh, I did a painting uh, before I left for the summer. Of course, it's different during the summer because. I am outdoors now. I'm in an indoor studio with fluorescent lights. Uh, but I, the last painting I did was um, in a um, uh, garage, uh, and I have a great affection for my father's old tools. So I used his old toolbox and all the tools in his toolbox as my as my brushes. <laughs> this is fascinating. It really is, and I'm so happy that we had you on the show today. Uh, if, if thank you so much, th this is kind of a different question, yeah. but it's, it's always a good one. So I'm going to ask it. If you had to battle Godzilla, that big mean monster, yes. how, how would you use your creativity or talents to defeat him? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned Godzilla because he almost defeated me. <laughs> I I am at a convention in um, um, it was a large state convention on Myrtle Beach um, on the beachfront big hotel and I bring Godzilla with me. <laughs> <laughs> Godzilla was uh, a good seven feet tall and it was an inflatable, so I had him in my suitcase <laughs> and um, I bought a commercial inflating machine from Sears to inflate Godzilla because I didn't have very much time to do the inflation. I start inflating and the machine just stops dead in its track. 
<laughs> so I, Godzilla almost defeated me because I had to use a bicycle pump that I borrowed in the lobby of the hotel <laughs> to inflate Godzilla. Didn't look quite right. <laughs> but wow. That, that, that was... Uh, what a coincidence. Yes. <laughs> what an amazing story. Only, yeah. only you would have pulled that off. I'll tell you yes. that much. <laughs> so do you, have, do you have any favorite advice uh, or, or resources that you use on a daily basis that, that you think our listeners could find some value in? You know, say maybe there's a, someone out there who wants to become an art teacher or just an artist. You know, what's some of the best advice that you could give them? I may get fired for this, but <laughs> uh, don't place too much emphasis on school. It's a sport where you really have to uh, pursue it relentlessly yourself, set your own goals and schedules, um, be tough, very tough. I think being a weightlifter or, or a football player, because uh, there'll be lots of difficulties along the way and you have to be tough. There'll be people telling you in school and outside of school and galleries that this is not what the public wants. This is not what will sell. So you have to be develop a sense of independence and not um, uh, consider that uh, a Bachelor of Fine Arts or an education in school will be the answer. It's daily work and independent work is the answer. So setting up a place to work, making plans, sticking to them, and um, being independent and sticking to what is important in your mind, not what the art world or teachers or others say. So the, the sense of independence I'm trying to install, instill in the youngest kids in elementary school. There's nothing more important for an artist. Beautiful. How can our listeners get in touch with you or contact if they have any questions? It's uh, my uh, UK address is gszek one at UKYEDU. Or the CCAT website, and I will answer questions on that too. I'd be very happy to. And if they like to see our programs, uh, we have people from Canada and uh, um, Europe, and uh, they stay with me, and they can spend a week in the school with me. I would welcome that. Amazing, and I'll put all those links in the show notes. And once again, everybody, take a note. You know, get up early, be creative, be persistent, stick to it, be as independent as you can, you know, carve your own path, make your own goals, uh, do a little creative boogie, do a little jive, get a little funky, uh, just be happy and enjoy life. And doctor, thank you so much for being the Archerpreneur now. And always remember to keep it funky. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Now podcast. For all the show notes and more information, please visit artsynow.com. That's A-R-T-S-Y now.com. Thank you. The music for this podcast was provided by Shaky Feeling out of Ventura, California. For more information, please visit shakyfeeling.com.
Keep it funky.